Good morning, class. Welcome to Art Eater podcast number 28. This is part two of our series on uh, console launches. So um, if you tuned in last time, uh, we were, uh, you know, the, the subject is console launches right now. Uh, as of this recording, it's mid-December 2020. We're right in the middle of the launch of the uh, PS5 and the Xbox um, Series, Series X. X and Series S, right? But, correct. Um, correct. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So we're 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 well into what is that? That is, uh, I believe, that's called the ninth. Those are considered ninth generation consoles. So we're entering the next generation of console consoles and and console wars. So yep. um, yeah, y'all remember when y'all remember when the next generation was always like it's the next generation, and you're like right, but now it's the next next generation. So <laughs> yeah. people are like, what generation it is, and you're like, it's the next one, and like that doesn't work yeah. anymore. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, we're definitely going to be getting into that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so so today we're, we're here to talk about uh, console launches. So we're, we're going to talk about um, just our, our lived experiences, uh, you know, because uh, we've all been playing games for, for a pretty, pretty good amount of time now. So we'll talk about what we remember of these uh, various launches and how... Uh, how they've changed over time, and maybe how that reflects the uh, evolution of uh, you know video games over time. Uh, so last time uh, we talked about uh, we started with uh, the third generation, you know the eight bit era. So like a lot of folks, uh, a lot of a lot of elder millennials, uh, a lot of us started with the NES. You know, so we, we talked about that. We talked about the uh, the fourth generation, the 16-bit consoles, uh, Super Nintendo, Mega Drive, Genesis. Um, you know, and then we even we got into the fifth, uh, the introduction of CD-based 32-bit systems, the introduction of uh, poly polygonal graphics with the Sega Saturn, PlayStation, N64. And today we're going to get into the sixth generation, starting with. The Dreamcast. Oh, oh, yeah. The Dreamcast. Yeah. Oh, how I loved the Dreamcast. What a what a what a console. Um, what a... I mean, just it, it, some of the marketing campaigns for it early on were just really uh, eye grabbing. Uh, you know, the it's thinking. Uh, it's just really simple stuff that just really. Uh, pulled you in to say, "Hey, man, pay attention to this this system." Like, you know, I mean, I was a big Sega fan already at that time, but uh, like, they really drove home the message of like, this is going to be important. And uh, I, I have very fond memories of what it was like uh, when that system dropped. So, like, this will this will be this will be fun. Yeah, um, and so the Dreamcast came out in Japan in 1998, but I think uh, anyone from North America is going to remember 9999. <laughs> yeah. That was the, uh, the launch date in the U.S. <laughs> I, was, I was right in line. Um, that was very catchy, very memorable, and I, I think just that alone sort of reflects sort of the, the greater sophistication of uh, the console launches by the... Uh, by the sixth generation, right? Because, uh, if, if, you know, last time we talked about how um, earlier console generations, like, they just kind of trickled out. Like, it's hard to even pinpoint when the Nintendo, uh, you know, the NES actually launched because it, it, it launched in different U.S. states at different times. Like, it, there, there weren't, like, global rollouts, you know, the, the people yeah. were just sort of testing things. Um, even the Saturn just, like, quietly came out, like, before anyone even knew. Like, you, you just went to the, the game store, and it was like, wait, what? 
but it's already out. And I think um, I think Sega definitely <laughs> learned their lesson from that one. Like you gotta you gotta hype it up. Um, and oh man, I was so hyped for the Dreamcast. Like uh, that was actually the first console I bought for for myself. Um, by then, I was a teenager. I uh, you know had worked over the summer, saved up some money. So um, yeah, I was still in high school when I came out. That that was you know like. Uh, Past consoles, like my, my older brothers got them or my parents bought them. Or, but this was like, this one was mine. It was my my first <laughs> console for myself. And, oh, man, I love that thing. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Um, that the Dreamcast was my, the first, that was the first console that I actually bought for myself as well. Because I was working oh. my my first job. And although 9999 was the... U.S. date. I actually got my Dreamcast early. Oh, um, nice! Yeah, because there was an import shop uh, that actually had it, and it was it grossly overpriced at the time, eh, a little bit. But uh, I was working, so <laughs> I I said, uh, you know what, this will be the one time that I will indulge in, uh, you know, an overpriced thing that I genuinely want. So I had it for about six months or so before the U.S. release, which was oh, nice. mind-boggling for like friends that I knew, um, you know. But uh, so my experience with the game was a little bit different. But I'm not going to talk about the stuff that I played because it's more regional specific. Uh, but like when the U.S. launch of the game happened, it still felt exciting for me. Um, I still the, the Dreamcast. Yeah, the Dreamcast. Like it was still like super exciting for me to uh, you know sit down and actually like play it like on nine 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 with the games that came out in the states. Which you know one of my favorites that came out during the launch was Power Stone. Um, Yes. I just want to I just want to ask real quick before James gets into the game. Y'all remember um, stores like. Toys, I, I remember Toys R Us doing this, but a lot of them did a bunch of nonsense with their ads where I remember Toys R Us had had ads about how you could trade it in with your previous console to get the yes. price of nine nine nine. Yes. <laughs> so it was I don't I think it was it was like two hundred dollars or something, but all the ads were like doing all this trickery to make get the price to nine 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 to match the launch date. And I, I don't know, I was it was always kind of burned into my mind. I just wanted to see if y'all remember that that just like how much they leaned into that. I do remember those bizarre like attempts at like getting you like to to buy the system. Like it was it was a very different time because I mean before that was the whole you know Sega does with Nintendo and you know the, it was yeah. like the smear battles, right? Like that was yeah. the first way they were trying yeah. to get you know your attention. But then you know it was just kind of like no, now we're just gonna have like intricate marketing campaigns that grab you uh, in ways that you wouldn't expect. And, yeah. uh, you know, us being susceptible to these things because it was new to us, it was a fun time because as a consumer and a fan of video games, uh, it just made it more uh, involving and more visceral. So, you know, if anything, I was excited for it. I was like, wow, man, I don't know what they're going to do. This is kind of great. Like, <laughs> like, I don't really know what to uh, expect. So, you know, anytime you saw an ad campaign, it kind of grabbed you because the first things you saw were like insane. And then it was just like, well, what else are they going to do? So, yeah, I do remember seeing those ads. And my dad was, like, incredibly confused. He's like, what do they mean by that? Like, what? <laughs> you know, like, I don't understand. Like, like, what do they want you to do with your system? I was like, dad, don't worry about it. 
Like I'm gonna. <laughs> well, no, no, that's, that's a good point because before they were targeted at children and, and parents buying them for their children, and now like those kids are growing up, and that it's like uh, it's a lifestyle thing, right? You're starting to see yeah. for that. Like they're, they're kind of leaning into like the Apple style of uh, marketing. Yeah, I remember my dad asking me like really specific questions. He's like, "Well, is it that like games in the arcade like?" Are they going to be that good at home now? I was like, well, they've kind of been, you know, but now they'll probably be better depending on what the game is. He's like, oh, wow, okay. He was just like, well, how many bits? Because he remembered 8-bit, you know. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I remember telling him, I was like, well, I think the Dreamcast was the equivalent of like a 256-bit system or something. And I just remember his eyes exploding. <laughs> like he just was like, wow. He's like, he's like, I guess well, that's why they're more expensive now. And I was like, ah, it's kind of. <laughs> 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 yeah why, yeah why not <laughs> yeah I was like, yeah, yeah kind of but uh yeah like it was a really exciting uh time and i remember playing uh power stone for the first time and you know anybody who knows me you know i'm a, I'm a fighting game nut so this is like a, it's like an arena based fighting game and it was the first of its kind that i remember playing i guess on like a official level of like this is what this game is really about. So it was really interesting. Um, and just the look of the game, because I don't think oh, anything was out like this. And it it has like a certain charm that uh, you really it's I miss it a lot, honestly, even from the, the, the logo design to like the characters. It just there was something very just genuine and pure and, and happy while being yeah. like really cool, you know, you had Tetsuya Shibata on the music. Is that a is that a Shoya logo or? Yes, yes, it is a it is a Shoya logo. It is the powerful Lord and Savior of logos, uh, Shoya, <laughs> doing doing what Shoya does best. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's like everything about this game was uh, was an event and. I wouldn't say I was like super good at it, but like I enjoyed it. Like I just really loved the character designs. I really loved the feel. Um, even though I was playing it at home, there was something about it that made me feel like I was in a noisy arcade. Like it just. Yeah. It, it, was it, it an arcade game to begin with? I believe that there was an arcade release in Japan. I may not I, be. I seem to recall that a lot of a lot of Dreamcast launch titles were on the Naomi first, and they were ported yeah, for the launch. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it came um, out in February in Japan in '99, February 13th. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, it came out right before the Dreamcast uh, version. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think, uh, yeah, there's still a nod to their arcade roots. They, they, it, it was the exact same game, right? The, between the Naomi board and the oh, Dreamcast. Yeah. Because yeah, uh, the, the Naomi board is pretty much like, the the bigger brother of the Dreamcast and the Dreamcast is like the younger brother you could take home. Like it just yeah. Like it was didn't, arcade perfect. Didn't they recently sorry to go on a tangent, but um didn't they recently like crack the um something about the emulation with the Naomi and now they're like yes. not even crack, but they're like porting Naomi games to Dreamcast now. Yes. Um so I actually like homebrewers. I, I have this thing. And it is a glorious, glorious thing. I also own a Dreamcast in these games. I just want to clear the air on that. Um, yeah. But this is just another convenient way to uh, play and connect with others uh, with games from a, a classic, I guess, era. And um, 
the emulation for it is beautiful. Uh, you know, whoever's doing uh, Null Bear DC, you know, is doing a fantastic job. Uh, the games are nearly perfect to the experience you would have with the physical console, and and Power Stone lives up to that. Um, yeah, so you know, I, I recommend if people want to play this game, uh, definitely seek it out. Um, it is it is a joy, and it is a, it's from a classic era of Capcom that uh, has inspired a lot of people uh, in various industries. And it's just a beautiful game. If you just like uh, beautiful color direction, sound design, character design, um, examples of how to make dynamic action easy to understand with multiple yeah, characters on so screen. Legible. Yeah, um, there's a lot of like beautiful things about this game. Um, you know, just to kind of cl- clarify, like what type of game it is. Uh, it's a 3D fighting arena fighter that allows you to use uh, special attacks um, that are specific to your character, but also you know you can pick up objects that are conducive to the stage, like tables and chairs and rocks, and bombs. Um, you know, and then there's a point in the game where if you collect the power stones, I think there are three of them. Uh, it would transform your character into a more powerful version of themselves. And, you know, you would have, like, insanely long-range attacks. And, like, it was just... Like, the game was already beautiful, but once someone got the Power Stone, uh, it transported you to, like, episode 26, metaphorically, of, like, what Mm -hmm. this game is. Um, And it was a beautiful moment. It It was intense, because everybody's trying to get the Power Stone, obviously, but, you know, it was still cool, even if you didn't get it, because you got to see what other characters are doing. You know, if you only play like one or two characters and someone plays someone you don't, now you get to see what their power stone, their true nature is. So it was this really fun, uh, experience. Uh, like I, I played that game for, uh, countless hours and the character designs. Oh my God. Like just, they're, they're so good. And when you look at them, it's like, they're so like, they come off as like super simplistic, but the way the approach to these designs, there's so much intricacy to them. And like the why behind them is so powerful that yeah. these characters became instant classic designs. Yeah. You know, and it's like it's, uh, Akiman and the Capcom team at, the, at their best. Like they yeah. have such elegant designs. Like you, you can't add or take anything away to make it better. Yeah. This is also uh, one of those cases where uh, it looks really good. I think we, we've talked about this extensively in other podcasts, but uh, their approach to 3D, especially in this era, they really didn't rely a lot on the lighting engine. So it still yes. really holds up because it's so painterly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's like one of the few games that when you're playing it, it looks, well, it feels like the illustrations for the game. Like it, yeah, it embodies yeah. that feeling, uh, you know, throughout your experience. It's like, you know, you look at something like uh, Marvel versus Capcom. I mean, it's got beautiful Bengus art and the sprites are great. But like there's a certain energy that the art has and a certain energy the game has. But with Power Stone, uh, even though they don't look the same, there's something about the energy and heart with everything surrounding it that it just feels synonymous. Like it feels like you're looking at the cover you're playing the cover of the game you know like it it, and that's not something in that day and time that was very common yeah Uh, i mean um so with the previous generation of consoles you're like ps1 era um you know people were getting 
introduced to 3D, and um, yeah, it was very novel. It became the new uh, de facto format, pretty much. But um, at the same time, like the 3D was uh, usually very far removed from the art, from the cinematics, um, you know. And then, and then with the Dreamcast, suddenly, like uh, you, the Dreamcast is so much more powerful than the PS1, and it, it was, you know, the, I, I think I'd say it's the it was like the jump from like 8-bit to 16-bit, that equivalent for 3D. And now all of a sudden the 3D um, is much higher fidelity and it's, it's much clearer and it can be more cinematic and convey so much more information. Uh, so clean. I, I wanna, I wanna ask all about this because, like, it, it's not the first game that I, I will mention on the Dreamcast, like Power Stone, mm -hmm. that has this. But y'all remember, like, there's something about the 3D in the Dreamcast versus like the PlayStation, PlayStation oh, yeah. Two that feels smoother. Like, if it, it, like, it nails yeah. the that cartoon shading feel. Like, like I, I was, I was looking at uh, Power Stone and I was like, man, why is this nostalgia hitting? Because unlike James, I didn't play. Power Stone initially, but I was like, "Well, what is this making me feel?" And I realized that the shading style is very similar to Xeno Gears, which is oh, it yeah. was just it was hitting yeah. that button. And there's something yeah. about the way that Dreamcast like cell and cartoon shading does that never quite got replicated. I don't know which, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Like, am I, am I crazy I or exactly what you're talking about? Like every time I see Power Stone, it still looks high tech to me. <laughs> it's still like, oh, yeah. this game looks so new and exciting. And yeah. I think. Um, well, I, I think part of it is uh, I, on the hardware side. The Dreamcast, I think it might have had more RAM than the uh, PS2. I'm not sure, but um, not totally sure about that. But uh, it, it was also one of the. I think it was the first console to do like anti-aliasing very nicely. Um, yeah, so it was. Everything's very crisp. Oh, uh, that's probably but, yeah. But I think really it's more uh, the approach. I, I think it's just when developing for Dreamcast, um, a lot of these were also developed for Naomi, right? So I think yeah. they were just thinking about making uh, arcade-style games, meaning stuff that just had to be immediately like appealing and all, but also like really clear, right? Like so, rather than cinematic, uh, they focused on like just absolute clarity you had to understand exactly where the character is at any time and i think um because of that they lean more into uh relying on the, the the textures for information like like you said rather than the lighting i think for, for the ps2 uh by the time you get to that uh, those consoles like uh, people it fell in love with uh what they could do with the real-time lighting but with dreamcast i think they knew uh, they get the best results just really baking in as much as they could into the textures and just doing like subtle lighting. I also, I, I, I imagine there's probably some influence in there, but I also noticed that especially like the designs and even if like you freeze screenshots of Power Stone, it feels kind of like an Akira Toriyama uh, comic. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. I, I can't imagine there isn't some influence there or maybe maybe it's just the, the, around that time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, James, I, you want to get I, into this? <laughs> I, I definitely think that uh, given the artists and the teams working, uh, they all grew up with uh, Toriyama and also a lot of artists that really uh, captured a mastery of shape language. Um, yeah. Having grown up with that kind of iconography of how to approach conveying things with a line, uh, I feel like from Akiman's illustrations to the fruition of the game, uh, the things that they were growing up with and influenced by showed 
they, they shined brightly with this game. And I feel like when you're looking at this game, when you're playing this game, uh, there's a certain classic level that is uh, of, of artistry that's timeless. That's why in 2020, I could sit down and play this game with no problems whatsoever and and still be in love with what these shapes are presenting to me and their uh, approach to those shapes. Because uh, around that time, a lot of companies were... They were trying to figure out how to make things look iconic in 3D, but it was a it was a struggle. It was a challenge for a lot of companies to really get a handle on the technology. And I feel like with Power Stone, it was a culmination of a lot of things that, given the time, this was all still new. Um, and yet, there's a feeling here that it's like you can almost say it's like like a, a quiet catalyst to uh, the way that Ultra Super Pictures conveyed 3D. Uh, you know, with 3D technology, like that 2D sensibility, uh, which is also a catalyst for what happens at like Arxis right now with how they're able to do 3D the way that they are. But like, I feel like Power Stone was like a, a necessary step to show that you can actually create uh, shape language based on artists that have come before, designers that have come before uh, in this format. And the Naomi board was like the perfect tool to explore and experiment with these things and it allowed the system to stand out in a specific way that you know even though the ps2 may have had what it had or the ps3 had what it had there's like a particular love and charm for a lot of the exploration that happened in the dreamcast era and to think that power stone was the beginning of it it's like that was a giant step I, I feel like um, I should tell anybody listening to this hasn't talked about games, but especially on the Dreamcast, you should go look them up and watch them in motion. Like screenshots oh, yeah. don't do the Dreamcast justice. No. It, like I, I feel like I, I like all the ones we were going to talk about. I looked up like a couple of videos, and I don't know if this was just an old Capcom thing uh, or old Sega thing, but so much of these games, like you're just watching them and you're just like, this just looks like delightful fun. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it looks that, it's just that, like that blue sky feeling. Yeah, yeah, like the uh, the power stone and the and the Shoei logo encapsulates that perfectly. Like, you see that logo, you see the art going into this game, and then you watch it in motion. You're just like, I want to play this right now. This just looks yeah. this looks like such delightful, amazing fun. Like just like the way the gameplay works together, the way the motion works, how colorful it is, and how well that all works together. It's the uh, yeah amazing. that particular era of uh, games in the arcades or. It was it was like the best lore that you could throw to like a potential consumer, um, regardless. Like again, regardless of what kind of games you play or what you're into, like there is just a certain um, je ne sais quoi, I guess, to like what <laughs> they were they were doing that it just compelled you to play, uh, you know, these games, and you just it was almost like. You weren't you weren't just compelled, but you knew you were gonna have the best time playing these games. You knew that like you were gonna have like memories like etched in your brain uh, in terms of what you know you were enjoying. Like whether you're into the technological aspect of like how they did it, or you know just that you want a fun arcade experience. And I mean, Sega was a company that for many years understood how to get. Uh, people's attention. I mean, Capcom is one thing, but you know, it might have been a little bit of that uh, that Model Three glaze that <laughs> <laughs> allowed the Dreamcast to uh, you know be in a position to create something like the Naomi Board to create games that are just like 
amazing. I mean, it, it and it felt good for once to have a Sega system that seemed to have a strong launch. Well, one thing I'm I'm noticing about the like the, the, the game design, something I, I like that I didn't play as much. I didn't really play Power Stone when it launched, but looking at it comparing to other games, like you, you know. For everyone listening, like you said, it was like a fighting game, but it it really is it's a fighting game combined with like a platforming game combined with like a um, a Capcom like anime style Dragon Ball Z thing, but also guns. Like it just all all, all these like fun elements together. It's such a uh, it's not as like mechanical of a, as like most fighting games we talk about, but the um, that style, that design philosophy is also kind of in a lot of these games, especially on, like the ones that run the Naomi board, that arcade feel. I don't know, like, I know this, that we people say things are arcadey all the time, but I actually feel like this era might have really been able to translate it really well. And it has not, it has a little bit to do with it being ported from the arcade, but that, that kind of like freeform, casual, but still technical fun feel where it's, it's combining multiple kind of generally low level mechanics to create. Um, a really, a really kind of fun experience that you don't need to be technical to be good at, but you can be. I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but I'm uh, starting to notice that. I'm I think you're explaining guys. that really well. I think you're yeah. explaining it incredibly well, yeah, honestly. And, and this game in particular is very emblematic of that. I mean, this was—I I feel like this was Sega's Smash Brothers. You know, Sega and Capcom's. Like, yeah, it, it, it was very casual friendly. Um, anyone could just pick up and play. Uh, characters shared so many, like just base moves and mechanics like it wasn't nearly as complex as a uh, street fighter or anything um uh, but you could get super good at it once you got into it oh yeah like you but you didn't have to like and, and the yeah. thing about it was like even if you wanted to that hurdle was not very hard to overcome yeah uh it it, it lended itself to it's like if you were to talk to my to someone and say well i want to create an arcade experience that any level player can walk away with an equally engrossing experience. I feel like Power Stone is probably one of like the best attempts at creating that uh, within one like soul game. Uh, I, I feel like you know you could play with someone who's like a super technical uh, you know player, but then you could also play with a casual person that could still uh, you know I guess tango with the best of them, so to speak. It's 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 a beautiful uh, game and and honestly, like again, it's it's something that we've mentioned before. But uh, there's a reason why this game visually can just is, is so impactful. And again, it has a lot to do with what I think the creators and the designers grew up with. And you know, it goes back to people who have such a strong mastery of like shape language. And Toriyama was infamous like super famous for uh doing this even in the earlier mangas of dragon ball um like all of his works um have like a strong uh understanding of of what to convey with shape language um the same thing with like you know pokemon obviously has this too because that's why it has such staying power visually uh but i also but I, i genuinely feel that there's a particular spice with this game and i feel like uh you know it's it's a toriyama stamp that's all through it and uh you know, I, again, I feel like it's it's worth talking about a little bit more because like the more that I'm looking at the images of this game, the more that I'm looking at it, it's it really embodies that feeling. Yeah, I'd I'd like to dig into that a little deeper. Um, 
So, like, uh, Sean, when, when, when you said you, you got a Dragon Ball, or sorry, Toriyama vibe, like, that's absolutely correct. It's so apparent just looking at the game art. The, the, the designs were largely by Akiman, but the, um, I think the game art was actually by, by uh, Bengus, the official art. Yes. It's definitely got that early Dragon Ball feeling, like, even, like, pre-Z, you know, like, uh, yeah. The thick lines, lots of rounded lines, and I was gonna say, you know what also was was triggering it for me. So <clears throat> there's uh, there's a, a portion of like kind of like how they illustrated the faces, but it was more than that. Like I was noticing in terms of watching uh, videos and stuff of it, uh, other than how fun it looked, but I was like, it's just the 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 usage of the way that Toriyama uses primary color, but it's not like dominating. Uh, it actually syncs together, so like it'll it allows them to create like costumes that have a lot of like like very saturated blues and yellows and oranges. Um, and the we were you were kind of talking about the clarity of shapes, James. Like also uh, things like sandals and poles and like uh, buttons on shirts. Like the way that Toriyama did it. Like it's it's both simple, but it's both it, it doesn't feel simplified. It just feels clear. Um, and it's something about the way that he combines the face colors and shapes that, uh, like, it, it kind of has such that vibe. And I, it's really hard to pinpoint the nuance that comes together, but it, I think all those things together really make it feel like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, as early as uh, Street Fighter II, I, I remember uh, reading an Akiman interview where he said uh, Dragon Ball was required reading, you know? Like, he, like it was such a big deal, such a huge influence on, on Capcom. Um, and then um, on Power Stone, particularly, um, I mean, there's direct references to Dragon Ball. Like the the game is about collecting the Power Stones so they can <laughs> right. make a wish, right? It's the game itself. Yeah. The 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 setup is an homage to to Dragon Ball. Um, yeah, it, for 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 the non-existent viewers listening to this that don't know Dragon Ball's plot, um, you know, it's about collecting the Dragon Balls, uh, summoning the Eternal Dragon. Um, Power Stone was about uh, collecting the Power Stones. Every character had a wish that they desperately uh, wanted. And, you know, when you beat the game, you would see what their wish was. Um, and some of them were ridiculous. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> my God, like, uh, do, do, do you guys, wh which endings do you remember? Like, what's oh, the one that, damn. Like, the first one you think of? I'm trying to think of because I know I sometimes I get the names mixed up from the regional version. Like, was it? Did they, did they change his name to Falcon in the U.S. version? Or because uh, I remember, I remember Fokker. I remember his is his ending. Yeah, they than... definitely changed his name from Fokker to Falcon. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, like I, that like was I just probably a good call. Yeah, for sure. Like I just, like I just remember like the controversy of. Of that, because I, I had seen the Japanese version, and I was like, "That's not gonna fly. They're gonna change that." I mean, it's the whole Pac-Man thing. Like, mm. like they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna change that. But um, I do remember the uh, Fockers. I'm sorry, Falcons. Uh, I remember, I remember his ending, but like, I don't remember much else. Like, because I played so much of it with my friends. You know, like I just remember yeah. going through it with the main character. Like I don't remember like much. Like, did you have one that you remembered that wasn't like, I, the main? Well, so like everyone else had like 
it's something a big wish either like a huge ambition to fulfill or like to help someone you know and then i i remember i liked using jack because i like the weird monster uh, character. And then what i did is <laughs> it's horrifying it's uh he so so the last boss is like this dio grando looking dude right and then you you, you defeat him um and uh jack's wish is simply to make a clone of himself and you're like, what? That's that's weird. And then what he does is he's Jack the Ripper. So he just turns in his clone. And then <laughs> <laughs> you see like a newspaper from Victorian England saying like, oh, they finally caught this guy. And then his plan is like, he's just going to continue going on his killing spree. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's, it's like, oh, oh they caught him. And then he's like, it's. It's like such a sweet, fun, like sunny game, and then like that ending was just so like dark. <laughs> like, yeah, like it's 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 funny because like the contrast of that is like Falcon's ending is he wishes you know it's very wholesome and it's yeah. it's kind of like happy, sad, happy, but like he wishes <laughs> his dad back to life, and yeah. it's basically you know back to the way it was where his dad is like you know always ripping him on how bad his piloting is, and he actually ironically loses the the power stone at some point and then you know now they're like trying to get it again or like it's just like the the game really has like this particularly like again it goes back to dragon ball like not just the shape language and this is the visual and the technical parts but just the feeling of like these characters is very much just like you know all these people are coming from various walks of life and they have these things that are super important to them and it's like you know jack is obviously on another spectrum than Falcon, but these power stones bring them together. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, the difference between Krillin and like Vegeta, you know, like they're very different people with different reasons and purposes, but these Dragon Balls connect everybody, you know, like it's just like a ah, man, like I think there was an anime for this, but I never watched it. You know, I just kind of focused on the game, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, in Japan, it's a big deal. They had a TV show. Yeah, like I mean, it just—it's a testament to what this game made people feel. Like it—it it just, like I—I I look at this stuff and it—and it makes me want a new game. Yeah, you know, like it—it it makes me want. It makes me wish that, like, you know, they could—they could like sheepishly, quietly walk into Arxis, like, "Hey guys, would you like to oh. <laughs> make? <laughs> would you? Would you? Would you like oh, that to?" Would be uh, perfect. Yeah, because one of the things for me, at least, right, is like that's super important about this game is like it's this game is like a perfectly cooked dish. Like you need like not just the right ingredients, but you need the exact same pots and pans yeah. and stove. Like you just it needs to it, be it comes together perfectly. Yeah. So like yeah, I would love, yeah, I would love to see uh, a very carefully crafted attempt at bringing this you know thing to life again not even to life because people still play this but um because it really has a special place in my heart and i remember you know funny enough like you know you mentioned you like jack a lot i remember looking at this design and i remember being like how can i get good enough to create something that has this much dynamism how do you like how long do you have to draw to like get to this point because Jack Jack's art, uh, you know, obviously is by one of my favorites, uh, Bengus. Um, his his art, his pose is so specific yeah. and it's so uh, 
simply intricate is like the best way that yes. uh, I can I can describe this. And I remember seeing solid lines like this on the work that he did uh, for Marvel Superheroes versus Street Fighter. But seeing it here, it it communicates in such a different way. Um, it, it there's just something about not just the fruition of it, but just the the confidence behind these designs is just like it's just unrivaled, man. I'd love to hear him talk more about this stuff. You know, I mean, we probably never will hear it. He'll be like, ah, this is what they wanted me to do. I did it. You know, it's probably <laughs> one of those kinds of things. But uh, no, this game really meant a lot to me during launch, and it's probably a game that I played way more than I probably like to admit. Um, but there's, but there's other games that were really cool too. Like, you know, and it's very strange how the contrast is between this game and the other game that I like to play a lot, which was, um, house of the dead too. <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, so that's a proper I, I, Sega game, proper. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. and, and, and this is one of those things where, uh, having that feeling, uh, at home is like, it, it was almost like a, it was a dream, right? Like, um, so, like, House of the Dead 2 is, like, a first-person shooting game where you shoot zombies. And, you know, my dad was really big into, like, stuff like Operation Wolf and Virtual Cops. So he liked Sega games himself, too. So when he saw that, he was like, wait, you can play this at home? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, and remember, I bought the Dreamcast, so, you know, it was no money out of his pocket. Um, but his first thought was, so do you want me to buy a gun? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, the moment that he saw it, because he was already, like... I'm going to play this game. So uh, I played a lot of uh, House of the Dead 2. Um, nice. And just the feel. I mean, we talked a lot about like what Sega and what Capcom does to create uh, a specifically arcade feel. Um, and playing something like House of the Dead 2 was like another uh, like dream of like, wow, I can play a game at home that looks like this. Because remember, this was a time where arcades still kind of had like a pull on like gamers because the technology was in the arcades. Uh, and this was like the beginnings of like arcades sort of being like, well, the home is starting to compete with us more. Um, but with house of the dead two, it was like the beginnings of, Hey man, you don't even have to step out of your house. Yeah. Like, 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 yeah, it's snowing like crazy outside. Well, guess what? With House of the Dead 2, the arcade is already here. You're the owner. You don't have to pay. You've already paid for it. And you get to sit and play this game that is so just confidently campy and just, like, like super fun to just shoot zombies. Uh, huh? House, of the, House of the Dead was also one of the first, like, arcade games that had, like, the, the secondary, like, gun controllers. So, oh, like... Yeah. It's such a quintessential arcade experience. It almost seems uh, audacious to bring it to a home console. Like, can you really replicate this experience at home? You know, because uh, I remember kind of what you're talking about, the arcade version of it. It felt like it needed a giant cabinet in order for you to actually deliver that kind yes. of experience. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it it felt like you needed like a Naomi or a Lindenberg in your house. And it's like, I don't know many people that have room for something like that. So it was it was almost like I sometimes I would like pinch myself because I'm like looking at my like CRT TV and it's like, what? Like this looks like an arcade game in my house. 
Like, like it was such a big deal for me. Like, uh, you know, like I said, I talked about it before with like Virtual Fighter 2, how the Saturn version just didn't live up to what Model 2 could do. But this time we're getting stuff that's looking closer, if not exactly like, uh, you know, an arcade game. So uh, playing through that game was like, it was just super fun just shooting at zombies because I remember this was around that time that like there was a bit of a sentiment or an argument about like violence in video games, but it wasn't as heavy. But like making it about zombies made it a bit more digestible for uh, people to say, OK, I'll put this game in my arcade. This is fine. Like you're shooting zombies. You're not shooting humans. Um, so that was like fun thing, too. I, you know? I have to ask you, James, did you were you able to procure a light gun to play to play House of the Dead 2 or <sighs> did you play on a controller? I at first I played it on controller, but uh, I was one of those people that stalked like diehard gamers club and like import stores in my area. And luckily I was able to find one. Uh, I did not have the same luck for virtual on sticks, but that's another story. I, um, I, wanted, I wanted to go on a mini tangent for no reason other than it's interesting, which is that mm-hmm. um, I guess I actually remember this for House of the Dead. So uh when the Dreamcast came out, because House of the Dead was, was uh, unlike Power Stone for me, one of the first games I played, but uh, they actually didn't release a light gun in the United States because Columbine had just happened. Yep. Um, oh. And you had to import it. Um, and uh, uh, I was in Virginia at the time, and uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the store. It might have been Funko Land or something. Uh you, yeah, Funko Land. Yeah. You, you, they, um, or, or Starland. Or Starland. Oh, yeah, yeah you're Starland. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you had to go to a store like that, uh, and they, they basically, like, imported, um, I don't know if they released them in Europe. I think they only released the, the, or the initial light gun in, uh, in Asia, but they were importing them. And I, re- I remember that it was like a, it was a pretty big deal because there wasn't any region locking on any of the peripherals. So, like, you could import it from anywhere, um, and you wouldn't have to do a bunch of nonsense like you used to have to do with, like, PlayStation games and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, no COD and, method. And this is more of a, a – also a, a thing where – this is also where I remember the, the kind of genius of the vibration pack. Do you all remember that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, to, to explain that part of it uh, – and y'all can correct me because I'm I'm going off of memory here. If I recall the because there was a vibration card that was removable that you could put in the controller, but you could pull it out and put it into other peripherals. So like the light gun had a slot for at least the one I had had a slot for the vibration pack. Oh um, yeah. Which <laughs> like at, like obviously like vibration is kind of a thing that we just kind of come to expect in controllers now. But I, I always thought that fact that the vibration pack was removable and fit in every peripheral was such a smart design. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was there's a lot of really cool tech with uh, the Dreamcast back then. Like it just it was doing it was doing stuff that no other console was doing. And again, I mean, we're talking about like launch stuff, so I won't go into too much detail for that. But man, like that that VMU could do a lot. Like yeah. the thing could do a whole lot. And uh, I think it was like a like a catalyst for uh, a lot of the stuff that we see now. Um, you know, with what you can do. Uh, in terms of saving memory, in terms of transporting things, like it, it was, it, the Dreamcast was ahead of its time in a lot of different ways. So, um, dude, if yeah, if Microsoft today, if they launched the new Xbox with 
like a little you know tamagotchi thing that you could slot into the controller and then take out and play with later everyone would oh. lose their minds they'd be like this is so innovative like, <laughs> right and it's like know? well you know welcome back to 1999 that's <laughs> that's how innovative sega was like they i mean and my god if you lived in japan i meant you could take your vmu to the arcade Right? Yeah. You, uh, you oh, could really? Trade data yes. with arcade machines. So, so you can take so so I'm, I'm you gonna, can take your custom character from home and take them to the arcade and fight people. So, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna only speak on this for like exactly <laughs> three minutes. Okay. Okay. Marvel versus Capcom two. The way that this game worked is that when an arcade owner would turn the game on for the first time, because I'm one of those people who was always there when that happened for fighting games. <laughs> uh. You saw a whole bunch of black shadows, like in the opening. If you remember the opening from Marvel vs. Capcom yeah, 2, it's very, yeah, it's very yeah. similar to uh, Vampire Hunter's opening, but it's the angle is different and it's rotating through like art that's supposed to be there. But when you first turn it on, we thought something was wrong with it, and the owner was like, "No, no, no, no it's fine." And we look and we see this globe, right? And there's like a, like hella question marks everywhere, and there's like about maybe twenty characters on screen. We're like, "What?" and the beginnings of this was that the roster for the game was time released. So over time, more characters would show up. The cool thing about the Dreamcast was, let's say you are at home playing this game for 3 billion hours with some friends and your arcade doesn't have Blackheart or Magneto or whatever. If you had your VMU and you had a Naomi-based board that the arcade had, you could put that VMU in there and you could put those characters on and vice versa. Mm. If you went to an arcade where they had everybody or at least characters you didn't have, you could put your VMU in there, get that information and take it home. And oh, now wow. you have all of the characters. And that was an insane experience. Um, but again, not going to talk about it any more than that. It's really cool. <laughs> That yeah. you could do that, and yeah. I'm just gonna leave the rest thank of it you. alone. But thank you for your restraint. I will say that, that you're right, though, that the, there's a couple things that this generation of consoles did that I don't know if they quite do as well. But like, because put like PlayStation also had memory cards that were removable and stuff like that. So, like, I don't know, this idea of removable memory that you could take and it was cross-compatible with uh, another person's console or version of the game. That's such a cool idea for a time when, like, you didn't have ways to connect to people over the internet to play games. Like, you had to go and be in person. Uh, I almost kind of wish something like that still existed in a more discreet fashion. Because uh, even now, even with the internet, having your data traverse to, like, another system or to a friend's system is not as easy as it should be. No, it's not, not at yeah. all. Yeah, not at that's, all. Like that's yeah, you, that's one of those things that you wish you can't even share save data on consoles. Oh man, but the the idea of like oh you're you're getting you're getting ready to go you're getting your backpack to go to the arcade like you're yeah, yeah. you're you're putting your like your your stuff in your bag and you grab your memory card or your your VMU so that you can go play like oh what a what a good memory. <laughs> Yeah. People, people used to. Okay, I don't know. This might be a regionally specific thing, but I think we were all like ironically in the same area. We just didn't know each other. Uh, yeah, that it, is. <laughs> that's funny. so yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> like we were all in the same area. We just didn't know each other. Um, we didn't meet until we all moved to Georgia. Yeah, exactly. So in my area, like 
people were going into arcades rocking VMUs like chains. Like, if they were playing Marvel 2, that was their way of making sure they brought their VMU to the arcade, was that they wore it around their neck because they wanted to always have it. So, like, you would see people be like, oh, man, like, some guy would come from, like, uh, I don't know, like, I'd be in Springfield, and some guy would come from, like, my area, like, Largo, and be like, yo, man, I heard y'all got Magneto, though. And he would pull out his VMU, like, yo, I'm trying to... Because the arcade he was at <laughs> didn't have that character. So he would hear, he oh was hearing, like, yo, Magneto's hella good. Like, I need to get Magneto. So, like, he would put his VMU in, and he would get it, and he would play some games or whatever. But this is also when Maryland VA was, like, having their own competitive arcade beef. So, you know, yeah. he didn't want to show his tech. He just wanted to come and steal a character and go home. <laughs> like, this is almost, uh, <laughs> almost certainly not what you're saying, James, but now all I can think of is, like, someone, like, walking all cool into an arcade and just having, like, literally a chain on their jeans with, like, all their VMUs and it, like, clacking together and them being like, oh, yeah, yeah, you got... You got Blackheart, I got Magneto. What's the deal? Listen, that happened. That's not... <laughs> the, yeah, like like I said, like I'm not going to go into too much, but it was a very interesting time where a peripheral device really lived up to the name, you know, because there were peripheral devices that came out for consoles, but they were... It was a lot of it was like, well, we're going to say what it can do, but it doesn't really do that. But with the VMU, it was something that allowed the gaming experience to be... Uh, both something you did with the Dreamcast, but also away from your Dreamcast. So yeah. it was a lot more involving. And uh, I, I missed that era and that time. Like, uh, you know, the Dreamcast felt different too. Like, even yeah. just as a design of a console, um, you know, you look at that thing, like, like what consoles were out before that? There was nothing that looked like a Dreamcast. Um, its design is very specific, and it's something that I learned having drawn one recently. Uh, <laughs> like, because it's in one of my illustrations that I did, because uh, I'm doing homage to, like, the Dreamcast in it, but um, it's a very neatly designed system, uh, and, and it felt very future, like, even down to the color, uh, like, the color choices with the or- that particular orange uh, and the, the very light, like, gray, like, the slightly warm gray. Uh, it was a very sleek-looking... Uh, system and even when you turned it on it just felt like I feel like this system like is a catalyst for why I like vaporwave man like there's so much like very sleek casually but calmly cool things about this system because um, I don't know if you guys went into system settings at all and listened to soundtracks to your Dreamcast but like uh, all of the I buttons did. I did do like, that. <laughs> yeah like the sound the toggling sounds all these things are very uh just quietly futuristic for that time. And it felt, it was very specifically like, there is no other system like this, even down to something as simple as playing like music CDs through your, uh, your console. I, I would like to use this opportunity to talk about the Dreamcast branding and how ahead of its time it was. <laughs> so, yes. It is very controversial for some listeners, but I'm uh, going to draw a couple parallels here between why I think that the Dreamcast's branding was ahead of its time uh, and also how cohesive it was. Uh, This goes all the way to the box art and how they treated it. So if everyone recalls, the Dreamcast logo was uh, famously the cinnamon bun. It's a kind of like a red spiral. But, uh, of course, like the the way that they sort of played it is that their kind of taglines were always like, 
it's still thinking. Uh, depending on how you looked at it, it had kind of a wave to it, like a wave in the center of the circle coming off. Um, and uh, one thing that's pretty cool also about how that reflected, so when you look at their cover design, uh, their cover designs were super delightful. Uh, so for this is uh, something that I really enjoyed about this, this generation uh, is that uh, the packaging of the boxes and stuff was very referential to the system, uh, which is a trend that I really like. So to give you an example, the original Dreamcast packaging had this kind of like circular arc on top of the, the actual art, and it had the triangle from the from the, the cover lid release also on the top to kind of reference the top of the Dreamcast, as if opening the top of the Dreamcast was letting you into this world. Yes. Um, and actually, um, it wasn't quite as aggressive, but PlayStation did a similar thing. Uh, you have to see the physical box, but on the side of the packaging, it had kind of the black ribbing that referenced the for the for the, the basically referenced the grading on the side of the PlayStation. Um, but the going back to the Dreamcast, which I thought handled it better, this is one of the kind of the first ones to James' point where they went with a very clean kind of white, very soft gray. Uh, you almost thought it was a Nintendo console because it was using so many brighter colors, but yes. it was also one of the ones that really popularized the... Like, games already had box art that had, like, screenshots on the back of it and stuff, but uh, I dare you, go look at, like, all the Dreamcast launch titles and look at their, like, box art, and it just looks fun. Like, they do such a good job of, like, tying... Like, there's always this kind of uh, idea, like, the, the Dreamcast text itself is very is generally not very goofy or fun it's um very mature but then it kind of has this um has the kind of the cinema button next to it on top of the light and it it creates this um very cool dichotomy in my, in my opinion where like you can tell that it's like a serious technical system but there's a lot of fun in it like that the kind of uh yeah. it, it really made it so that games like power stone like all these games could really flourish on the console. Like it doesn't, um, like some of these things wouldn't have seemed as, like I, I guess the way I'm trying to kind of explain is the other consoles this time went very dark, very more serious. Like uh, GameCube was was even uh, probably the the most kind of non-light, non-friendly that Nintendo had gotten for a long time. Uh, so during the generation, like everyone was going like the Xbox was black and green and like the PlayStation 2 was like black and blue. And I just thought it was really, really refreshing. Uh, that, like it still really is to look back at this. And it's just like a, such a pleasant overall approach. Like the boxes feel nice and clean. Like the, the I, I feel like the, uh, the Cinnamon Bun logo really aged really well. Like it still feels really nice and nostalgic. Um, I actually have... Uh, a coffee mug, and I have a couple things that that has the the cinnamon butt on it, and uh, <laughs> it's nothing but pleasant. So I just wanted to kind of throw that in there. One of the things that I like about how you're explaining this is like the constant use of pleasant, uh, because that system when I bought it, the box, the presentation, the and this is back when I didn't know that much Japanese, but. Um, I could read some of what was on this thing, and it was a lot of just, like, really beautiful, uh, like, just branding, right? And the thing about it is that, like, it created this certain experience where, and I feel like this is something that's happening a lot now when you buy, uh, you know, like, 
new systems or new devices, there's like an experience, like an unboxing experience that comes with it. Um, and it's just, I feel like the Dreamcast really started to encapsulate the beginnings of it. You know, like when you when you got the box, like uh, the Dreamcast logo is like literally on like the top side and you've got the bun in the middle. You've got like the little, I guess, openings on the side where you could open up the box. Um, and depending on when, where you got it and when you got it, um, you got an orange box like the colors were inverted. So the Dreamcast logo, the cinnamon bun was white, but the Dreamcast font was still black. But you had an orange box. Um <laughs> I was saying, James way ahead of me. I was actually posting a picture in our chat, and James was like, "The orange box." I was like, "Yeah, the orange box." <laughs> like you know, and it and it had all of these uh, like like little sayings. Some of it was like a little bit Englishy, and it just there was a certain experience that came with buying the system. And you know, anybody who knows me, I mean, I'm a big Vaporwave fan. I'm a big fan of sort of uh, this very calming, relaxing sensibility with like music. Um, when you boot the Dreamcast. There is a particular, and to this day, yes. there's no console that has lived up to this. There's this very sort of aromatic, uh, oh, ethereal like feeling of seeing the Dreamcast logo form on the screen, and there's like uh, some sort of augmentation to like water drops or something that they're using. Yeah, um, it's and it, such it, a perfect sound. And it felt so specific. It's like. I, you know, Richmond and I, we were about the same age, so we had our first jobs, right? I hadn't really worked for, like, years, but I knew what a long day felt like, right? So yeah. when you come home, you plop down, and you push that button, <laughs> and you hear this, like, it's, it's an inaudible welcome home feeling. Yeah. Uh, and and I and I adore that. The only thing that comes close to that, and it's not even on the same level, is the old school Amigo logo with the water that hits the the logo. It's a very calming sort of just like your home. It's time to relax and watch anime, or your home. It's time to play House of the Dead. You're gonna relax, not think about what happened in the day. It it yeah. literally creates a situation where it's like it prepares you for recreation. I, I um, got a fun fun fact about. The, you know that that perfect Dreamcast startup noise. Do you know who yes. composed it? No. It's Ryuichi Sakamoto. Oh my god! Really? Yeah, dude, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, that, that makes so much um, sense. Right? Doesn't your life feel a little more complete right now? My life <laughs> feels. My life feels like that boot up sound now. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Um. You know, for, like for, I said, yeah. ah, man. Just like, this, for, this, for the viewers that don't know, uh, Ryuichi, Ryuichi Sakamoto was uh, one of the founding members of uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra, which is uh, just one of the most important Japanese pop bands. And I, I, I would argue one of the most important pop bands in the world because like, they influenced everything. They were one of the earliest electronic bands, like I think even earlier than Kraftwerk. Um, and they 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 influence so much of like Japanese pop, rock, video game music, film scores, and even the development of early hip hop in America. Like, yeah, they're amazing. And yeah, and of course, you know, this goes into uh, oh, city pop and vaporwave and 
Yeah, take it away, James. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the thing about it, right, is like just the overall experience of using the system, like the UI, like you, know, you let's say you don't put a game in and you're in the system settings. Uh, this this game just like like it just felt calming and relaxed. I remember, you know, this is gonna date me a bit, but uh, Kareshi Kanojo no Jijo, uh, I believe his and her circumstances was new. Uh, in Japan, and you know, shout outs to uh, Club A type fan subs. Uh, I ac- acquired it at the time, uh, or rather, I had access to it, I should say. Um, but I bought the OST for it, and sometimes I would listen to it before I went to work. Uh, what's interesting about it is that when you're playing music in your Dreamcast, the the colors and like the the fonts and everything that you're looking at, it basically just felt like the game knows. Oh, okay you're not playing video games right now, but you're using the system. So you want to relax. You want to be calm. And it just felt like the system was like, I'm going to lightly play this music for you before it's time for you to get up and go to work. And I would just sit there and stare at the UI screens. And it would just be like, wow, this is so calming and relaxing. You know, like this is so just like... Like, this is what I needed, right? Because it felt like yeah. it was like you were in water, I think. Um, and a lot of the buttons were huge. It, like It, it like, actually feels very similar to what, like, they achieved with the Wii, but obviously many years before the Wii actually came out. Like, you yeah, know, very, very yeah, pleasant, yeah. Uh, large, car- like, not quite cartoony, but very graphical effect, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a very graphical uh, sensibility to uh, just the intent behind how big the buttons were. And the fonts that were used for everything. Um, and I mean, some of it honestly is like early vaporwave aesthetic. Like you could li- yeah. literally take like, uh, you know, an all old Greek statue and put behind it. And it's just like, <laughs> this is like vaporwave. Um, and just the, the way the buttons animated, because um, I, I believe some of them would like bounce around a little bit. Um, it was just very calming. Like it's almost like they knew that like, uh, this is a a system that is a source of various types of entertainment, but the ultimate sensibility is that we want you to feel relaxed and that we want you to enjoy whatever aspect that you're actually experiencing with the console, whether it's setting the time on the console, you're listening to music or checking through your files or, or playing a game. Like they, they wanted this to feel uh, like, like just quietly pleasurable where you're just like, cause I know for me, I mean, the age I was when I was like working and I bought a Dreamcast, like an hour or two before I had to go, I was like, dude, what am I playing? I'm at work already. Like, Oh man, am I going to try to learn Strider's infinite Marvel one? Or I'm going to, I'm going to try to like, am I going to play like Sonic adventure or am I going to play power stone? Like I'm already thinking like, man, I just can't wait to get home. Um, yeah. and, and I, this, yeah. I wanted to, so I wanted to mention uh, this is uh, more of an aside about like uh, this generation around the way that UIs were developed at the time, uh, but the, so the things you're talking about are like were kind of slightly 3D, um, and they kind of existed in, in a 3D space. And this was actually uh, went with the advent of 3D games. Uh, I don't know if people are aware of this. A lot of the way that menu UIs were developed, since it costs so much extra memory and RAM to like load. Uh, you know, a flat, transparent graphic in there because, as as me, <laughs> Richmond know very well from our time. Oh, yes. uh, transparency is is a, a luxury that not all game developers have had for a long time. So, 3D models actually offered a a weird way of achieving that, even if you wanted to create something graphical. So, actually, around this time period, and it really lasted all the way up until about uh, probably the PlayStation Three generation. Uh, 
at least the games that I was working on, where it was actually much more common to craft a 3D environment for a menu, and then basically what you were doing is projecting the models inside of a box. It was almost like creating a little 3D studio, but designed with the camera to only look at it one direction. Um, and then it, it became actually much more performant on the memory to actually like build your menu in 3D space, even if you were just looking at a flat surface in 3D that had textures on it. But the, the Dreamcast actually is one of the first ones that did that where the buttons look very graphical and they bounce and stuff, but if you look very closely at all of the assets, the buttons uh, themselves are graphical assets um, projected in a 3D environment, and then the actual icons are 3D models floating behind them. And then that when when you actually select them, they 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 jiggle back and forth by turning the model in 3D space, which actually allowed them to not um, play. And since they're the 3D models with barely any lighting, they use mostly flat textures. So it's actually a very low-level way of maintaining a, a memory footprint. Um, while still making it feel very graphical and delightful. Um, anyway, I just think it's, I thought it was super interesting. Now with all the memory they have, it's it's certainly possible to load stuff over the top of the game engine, but it's kind of like an uh, interesting uh, way to get around the limitations of the, the systems at the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the fact that you could talk about the uh, console UI um, in, in that much detail, like that, that says a lot about sort of the jump that took place during this uh, console uh, yeah, uh, generation, because um, like b before that, there, there wasn't really much to do, like with the console. You turned it on, and it told you to put the game in. But with the Dreamcast, um, there was you know so much to do. Like you, you could play the game, listen to music, uh, check your VMU, and this was huge. You could go on the internet. This was the first internet-enabled console. Yes. Um, like such a big deal in the past. Oh, I'm sorry. The first internet, the first console that shipped internet enabled by default, because like you know there there was actually like a Sega modem in Japan. There was like a Super Nintendo satellite TV, like bizarre, <laughs> crazy system. Um, but Dreamcast was the first, like right out of the box, comes with a modem. You're supposed to take it on the internet. Yeah, that, that was a big deal. Sega really. Uh, so innovative. They they don't get enough credit for how many things they pioneered. Well, well, while we're talking, kind of talking about the system and the UI, I, I have to. Even though I know we we were gonna get we're gonna get into some games for the launch, I do want to briefly mention uh, the the greatest unsung feature of the Dreamcast, which is the ballpoint directional pad. Um, yeah. Which, if you're someone like Sean who can't competently use an arcade stick. But you need to do quarter circle forwards without destroying your thumb or your fingers. What you need is the Dreamcast's single ballpoint <laughs> directional pad. Um, and and to clarify for people, what what I mean is like so basically, most directional pads are actually segmented up, down, left, right, um, and they basically have. Uh, modules on each one so like the, the PlayStation is like very famous for this where it discreetly separates the directional buttons just configured in an up down left right configuration Dreamcast has actually got a single button and it's anchored in the middle so that you can basically place your thumb or your finger directly in the middle and then all you have to do is tilt your hand uh, or tilt your the, the angle of your thumb or your, your finger and it will push it the right direction so um, when you're doing something like a quarter circle forward, rather than uh, very quickly doing a uh, like a right 
down, right, down, you can literally roll your finger. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's, I don't, I can't think of any controller that quite has the, the deep, delicious D-pad experience that Dreamcast is capable of delivering. Uh, so it's still my favorite console to play fighting games on to this day. Yeah, um, it, it actually is something that was used by uh, a top Marvel vs. Capcom 2 player toward the end of its like initial uh, competitive meta cycle. Um, I believe his name was Fnatic. He's really good with like Magneto. So, you know, that character requires a lot of intricate inputs for air dashing, like triangle jumping. And there was a lot of controversy because he wasn't using an arcade stick. You know, they were like, oh, is this some sort of manipulation? Is he using macros or whatever? Yeah. But uh, yeah, like it was one of those things where he was able to uh, put in complex uh, inputs uh, a lot easier than he would have had with like a an arcade stick. And he actually played very well. He was a pretty prominent player. Um, wow. So it just, it's, it's a testament to just how wonderfully designed the Dreamcast is on, like, all fronts. It's a very, yeah. very awesome system. Oh, man, okay. Um, this is quickly turning into the, the Dreamcast podcast, which is, which is fine. I love tangents. <laughs> uh, but um, let's try, let's, let's get back to the, the, the main topic, uh, which is, you know, the, the launch. Um, uh, let's see. Um, well, one thing I can say, we were kind of talking about um, previously, like Power Stone and the the cartoony feeling, and mm-hmm. I feel obligated to bring up another game that really nailed this, which was Sonic Adventure. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, that that was really my entry into the system. I actually hadn't had got the console yet. I think I even told the story in the podcast before, where like uh, I went over uh, to, to to play games with uh, one of my friends, Nick, who had the Dreamcast. Uh, and uh, yeah, we 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 went intentionally to play Sonic Adventure, but uh, we did not. Uh, we we ended up playing Dark Starkers, but that's that's a, that's a story for a different time. Uh, but still, Sonic Adventure was one of those ones where I couldn't believe how smooth it looked. I, I mentioned before, like there's something about the 3D quality, and it's visible in Sonic Adventure as well. It's just um, it really like I always felt like previous to that, 3D really felt 3D to me, and these are the, the first games where. This, the, the anti-aliasing, the way that it worked, the, the smoothness of it, the use of color. It, it was the first one that I was like, wow, this doesn't feel 3D to me. I know it is because if you all played Sonic Adventure, you know, you were often behind Sonic or uh, in a very 3D space, but they still made it feel like you were existing in a 2D environment. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. No, no, that, that that's actually a really, that's a really good point. Like it does uh, encapsulate that that feeling without like trying to be forceful or yeah like that game felt classic even though it was doing new things yeah do, do, do you remember like um just your, your first impression of it like the, the actual gameplay like what, what was like going through your mind yeah well it's super it's a super fast game and it's it's really exciting uh so i don't know it's just like like i said with the dreamcast it's just like pure Pure like unaltered delight. Just uh, um, I think there's a there's also a, a bunch of nonsense that happens on the stages. Um, it, it definitely kind of has a very similar kind of Mario Galaxy feel to it, where like you really don't even question why like a giant orca whale is diving in front of Sonic or or something, or you know like why you have to dodge a jet or something. 
yeah. like it sort of makes sense within the context of the story. Uh, but it, it really, it, it was a, to your point, a new way of capturing the capturing that kind of frenetic sonic feel, but not from the side. Like I actually was skeptical of it because uh, it because it is a third person kind of behind the shoulder. Of Sonic, I think the camera, if I recall correctly, depending on when you go over uh, spins and turns, it does occasionally switch to the camera being in front of Sonic rather than behind him, which oh, yeah. also I was super impressed by. Like, so the the way they use the 3D camera is pretty innovative, but um, it was one of the first times that I can remember doing those kind of scenes where you're running away from something toward the camera, uh, you know, and you're having to like get the rings while dodging and jumping and platforming while maintaining a high speed. It, it, it definitely had a very kind of like F-Zero vibe. Um, I think they yeah. captured it really, really well. And the the, the, t- the colors and the textures were just so delightful um, and colorful. Like it, they worked cohesively together. It felt, it felt really solid. Yeah, they just did a shockingly good job translating the, the aesthetic of Sonic into, into 3D, you know? E- even occasionally using, like, photoreal textures, but they made it work, like that detailed grass or some, some of those stone textures, like... Yeah. Um, one they're of the photo-based, that, but they work. Yeah, one of the things I remembered, too, was, like, there's a really strong uh, command of color direction in this game, because uh, there's a stage, I can't remember the name of the stage, but there's like a stage where there's like a storm or like a tornado. And what's interesting about that is like, obviously it feels like there's like a overlay to convey that like, you know, the clouds are darker and like overall like color, like color constancy is affected. Right. Um, but instead of like going too far on the scale in terms of like how this affects color surrounding the level, they found a really good balance that like, the colors still were vibrant, but within the context that, like, okay, obviously the environment has been affected by, like, dynamic weather or, like, and the fact they were able to do that without making it look like it's black and white or making it look, yeah. like, awkward, like, I felt like that's a really strong achievement, especially in this era, because a lot of this stuff was, like, super new. Um, but I remember feeling that being in that stage is like, wow, like, I feel like I'm really in a tornado, like... You know, like as a as a player, not me, but like as someone who's controlling a game, like it's like, oh man, I feel what they're they're going for. You know, like uh, you know, you would see that big pinball like button, and it's still bright red and yellow, but it was like just enough of, of a twinge of like a gray like overlay yeah. on it that it 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 let you know, okay, like the environment has been affected. It was really convincing. To, to draw this. To, to draw this more like around more of a uh, a launch topic than just like about the game, the games we like, mm-hmm. uh, the reason I, I kind of keep bringing up the, the textures is uh, I was also into like Ready to Rumble boxing, which was like you know the kind of the, the, uh, yeah. the build on style, very similar to like the the Punch Out style where like you fight this goofy cast of characters, but the 3D wasn't quite as like not surprisingly when you look at like Capcom and Sega games, their their command of the the model and the, the art direction really looked good. Ready to Rumble definitely wasn't quite as cool looking. Like their models were a little bit they, they aged a little bit less well just because their uh, their sense their sensibility around shapes wasn't as good. But still, almost all of the launch titles like uh, I, I feel like we kind of talk about how this era was really like about 3D. That was definitely something that PlayStation was pushing toward. And we've talked in previous podcasts about how they like they actively kind of discouraged these 2D looking games. And I, I don't know, I feel like the launch lineup for Dreamcast really, like, really embraced it. Like, yeah, we're going to do 3D, but they're going to look 
like 2D, they're going to bring in a lot of color. They're not going to try to look real or cool, like cool in the way that like, I think I've talked about before how uh, like American box art tends to like an example being like Ratchet and Clank where like uh, in Japan or in, in like kind of APAC regions, it's got like this funny, cart, fun, cartoony version of them. And it just looks so delightful and fun. But then the American ones got like metal and they have like a big bazooka with sunglasses. And like there was something happening there with where marketers thought that Americans really wanted everything to look like badass and cool and Duke Nukem. And I don't know, I feel like. <laughs> Dreamcast launch lineup was kind of a kind of the exact opposite of that. Like yeah, all the cover good, art looks. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Good point. Like um, I, I just want to say real quick, the the cover art it was localized and different from ja uh, the Japanese cover art, but they didn't go as far as to like redo the art completely to give you the wrong impression of the game. Yeah. Like they had been doing for for previous for, console for, generations. Yeah. Like a lot of the games actually had the Japanese art made it to the cover. Uh, I, I think they figured out, like, oh, wait, you know, maybe people actually like the game for, for the game, for what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually was, like I said, like, this is something that, you know, a lot of people probably wouldn't think about, but that was a big deal. Um, you yeah. had a lot of stuff that happened like that. I mean, you know, we won't go into too much detail on it, but, like, you know, the Mega Man covers here were, like, very different. And, uh, <laughs> you know... It, it, yeah, and, you know, the fact that they actually went with the original art uh, you know, to me, it was like, oh, man, this is like a step in the right direction. This is awesome. Um, you know, and again, I mean, for a launch, like, again, this was really, there's a lot of stuff going on, even in like the early launch in terms of how they were like marketing the stuff to us and not just the marketing, but just the overall experience like of the games that were, were out. Because like, you know, we're talking about, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say, like, what, what you're talking about, uh, I just wanted to mention, like, the, to your point, it isn't just, like, marketing. Like, the reason that, to me, this was so important and why I have such a good memory of this launch is, like, uh, this is back when, like, Toys R Us was a viable place to go get video games. Um, yeah. You, you would be standing at the wall looking at games, and I don't think we talk about this a lot, but, like, when, like, consoles overall, like, I feel like Dreamcast might have been the first one to really think about, and that's why I mentioned the cover art and, and how cohesive their branding was. I really think they thought about how they were perceived as a console in aggregate, because if you if you stack all of their box art together, as you would see in an, a Toys R Us or a Target or a Walmart or an East Starland or something, all together, it has mostly, to, to your point, Richmond, the Japanese-based 2D art, very, like, bold, flat logos, um, a lot of like very little actual use of like 3D or dark color. They leaned into the white. Yeah. So collectively, it just it felt like looking at an arcade. It felt like all these side art and stuff. Like it wasn't if, if you compare it to like PlayStation titles where they were doing a different variation of things where a lot of black boxes, doing a lot more um I'm gonna call them artistic things, kind of like Metal Gear Solid doing an all-white cover, which is is a different kind of cool. But it didn't quite capture this like going to the arcade all these fun looking games that have like just really great looking art on them like they like to your point they weren't they were selling you the feel of the game like even power stone um like i said i didn't i didn't get it initially but it's got this um like he's got it's one of the cover i've seen is it's like him jumping toward it and he looks super happy and there's like a bunch of kind of uh, characters yeah. behind him like it gives you such a feel of the game but it doesn't say this is a fighting game where there's bombs nope. or things exploding. It's it's all about the the like the really like underlying feel. And I just wanted to kind of mention that like cohesively when you put them all together, that's what to me makes it feel like such a a great console is 
they were very consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 true. Like there was there was a, a very strong follow through with the feel and experience of like the Dreamcast, like just in total. Didn't matter what game you played, didn't matter what it just let you know that like it was just sort of like I don't know, like almost like a like a like a like like if you could walk into the lobby of a person who crafted your dreams and said, Okay, well, what are you in the mood for tonight? Like, are you in the mood for like a fighting game? Okay, cool. Are you in the mood for an adventure game or an arena fighter or whatever? Like, and I think the Dreamcast kind of lends itself to this sort of broad idea of like, you can do whatever you want with this console. You can experience whatever dream you want to experience with this console. Like, if you want to run around super fast and jump on jets for no reason and bounce off and jump on an enemy, or, like, if you want to run around and collect Power Stones, or you want to shoot zombies, or, like, I don't know, uh, like, find out if the soul still burns within. I don't know. Like, you could <laughs> you could do certain things with the system that was just, like, I don't know. It just felt unheard of. Um, you know, I mean, like... Soul Calibur, for instance, like oh yeah, I, I it like that game. <laughs> and again, this is like uh, this is a guy who's like strictly two D, uh, like fighting game player. Uh, Soul Calibur got me. <laughs> like I was like, man, I need to learn this game because, good lord, like this is a beautiful, beautiful game. Um, and, you know, again, I'm a big Sam, Sam, uh, Sega person, so Namco... Like, Tekken was always kind of in the peripheral. Like, I never was really big on, like, you know, like, Tekken at that time. You know, it's changed for me now a little bit. But uh, at that time, you know, I was always like, oh, there's those, there's those, those Tekken people. They do stuff. And then I saw Soul Calibur. And I know it's weird to say, right? All oh, those, those, those Tekken people. It's like, people love Tekken. But I, it's not that I hated Tekken. I just was a very much someone who was really into Street Fighter. Um, but Soul Calibur on the Dreamcast was like a big, big deal. Uh, I was really taken in by how beautiful uh, yeah. that, that game was. And before that, the only 3D fighter that I really played a lot was Toshinden. So this was a massive leap yeah. uh, in terms of graphical splendor and just overall execution of, uh, you know, what this thing could, what the Dreamcast could do. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, for, for me, that was the launch title. That was like the game where you put that in and you're like, oh, okay, this is the next generation. Like, this is such a clear, like, yeah. leap forward above everything I'd seen before. Like, it, it was just the best looking 3D game, like, it's ever a, at the time. <laughs> Yeah, it's like 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 I remember from the opening, it was just like the camera moving super fast on like terrain and like weapons just like falling in front of you, and that doesn't yeah. sound cool, but it looked really cool. Like it looked amazing. Um, even it just tone. yeah, yeah, it set a very particular tone. There was a lot of close up shots of like the models, and I mean at this time, like models this intricate was not a thing. It just wasn't like all this was new. So like seeing that. And then seeing how creative they got with, like, you know, using silhouettes with 3D models and then transitioning into you seeing them, like, you know, just seeing these 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 models have as much detail on them, but still look stylized and fun and, like, interesting. 
it, it was it was a huge breath of fresh air and it is a weapon based game so you know like samurai showdown and toshin were probably the only real experiences i had with that so having this uh i guess urge satiated in a different fresh way was kind of cool like and then and anybody remember that that three D leaf or was that was that a photo like a photorealistic leaf, like leaf that actually like they use for like the wipe, I think when uh, either Taki or someone else is on the screen. Does anybody remember that? <laughs> oh, it was um, wasn't it uh, so Sophia? Yeah. Middle? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. She's doing sort of the, the anime pose, like the hand clasp yeah. over her arm. Yeah. Right? yeah, but it's like the fact that they were able to even do that with like 3D models. Like, dude, like what? Like, like this game is uh, awesome. I, I want to mention this is another one where you have to like go back and rewatch it in motion. Uh, it really looks really good in motion. I, I don't remember if the original Tekken did this, but I also remember this being one of the, the first games where they had the different camera angle replay of you winning uh, winning the match or winning the, the round. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to think if, uh, if Virtual Fighter did it. I think Virtual Fighter did it. Or I could be wrong, but um, but also Virtual Fighter Rich, didn't have Valdo either. Dude, so. Richmond sounded excited. Do you have something to say about this? Yeah, I mean... This game let you be just like a total asshole when you won. Like, <laughs> it wasn't as quite, quite as far as like a fatality or something, but like you get in a couple extra hits there at the end, even after you won, right? Oh, yeah. And then it would show you oh, the, yeah, that's right. After the KO, you can keep hitting them. Yeah. You can still keep smacking them. And then, and then in the replay that drives it home, like they, they show you doing that from like different angles. And what's great about it is that the narrator is still talking. He's <laughs> like bludgeoning the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was another thing that really stuck yeah. out to me. I really liked the, uh, like, this is for me. Maybe this is different from other people, but, like, there was a certain, like, inside the actor studio feel of the narrator, like, talking over, like, yeah. beating the dog shit out of somebody. <laughs> and it was, like, so bizarre for me because you would never think that that would ever happen. And like, yeah. I mean, I, we, I still have friends that I meet up and we still quote some of this stuff from this game because the, the narrator it was such like a really uh, interesting and like fresh element to the experience. And just adding to the fact that you being able to be an obnoxious asshole, like, wow, he's still talking is hilarious. Can, can you even imagine <laughs> trying to pitch that today? Like, <laughs> I already, you know, this fighting game, you're fighting to the death, the orchestral score. And like a kindly old grandpa just like <laughs> rechatting with tail. you by the fireside. <laughs> like it's, uh, it really is. <laughs> like, how do you it's like, oh yeah, so by the way, like we had this narrator and he only talks specifically at the beginning and the ends of matches. Now, when the person's down, they can still be hit. So like how do you even yeah, that would never you wouldn't be able to pitch that. Well, I wouldn't say you wouldn't be able to, but you would have to have a, a particular type of uh, uh, approach oh, like, to that. It's like you, you're just beating the tar out of someone, and then he's going on about, like, yes, and, you know... The, the soul the, still burns, and, the, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, the jaws of victory. Like, it's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, I got to tell you guys about... Remind me later, because I'm not going to do it now, because I don't want to go on tangent, but uh, just remind me... Just say Soul Calibur and Cheesesteaks. I'll tell that story later. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like maybe we need to hear it now. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's, my, it's 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 relatively short, but it plays okay. into this the, the whole narration. So the first time I played Soul Calibur or the Soul series was Soul Edge. Yes. This was like the arcade well, base. The first one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was the System Eleven uh, game. Um, yep. And I played it or back PS1 in my yeah. yeah. And I played it in my hometown where like I was born, but I wasn't raised because I was visiting like my grandma. And there was this pool hall that just I don't know if the arcade owner just knew or he had a son that I never saw. But this guy would get fighting games all the time, consistently. Um, you know, he would get Final Fight, but then he would get Street Fighter, but then he would get X-Men for Street Fighter, whatever. So Soul Edge was there. And I remember seeing it like, oh, man, like, this is cool. Like, there's ninjas, there's knights, there's all these cool characters. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I saw this guy, it's a pretty big guy, playing this game. And, like, nobody was over there. Like, there were people watching him from afar between, I guess, the pool tables and where the arcade games were. But they wouldn't go near him. And he was just, like, playing the game. And I would hear the narration and hear him bludgeoning people. And I was like, man, this guy must be really good. So I walk over. You know, I'm like, oh, well, I just want to see what happens. And I noticed this particular smell. Because the pool hall had, like, a cafe where, not a cafe, but, like, a place where you could order food and stuff. And I was like, it smells like Philly cheesesteak over here. And the, the, the arcade panel was pretty large. It was almost like one of those ones you would see for the X-Men game that had four players, but there were like just two sticks on them. So there's a lot of space, a lot of real estate on left side, right hand side. Right. And I noticed this freshly cooked, steaming hot cheesesteak on the right hand side next to him. Right. And he's like, got this sort of emotionless imagine an npc character from lane who's in the background who has that very like robotic just like deadpan look on their face like they're staring into a monitor like he was this character and he was beating the dog shit out of the computer it looked like a tool assistant video <laughs> and i was just like i was like what the fuck is going on but then i looked at his hands so his left hand has one half of the philly and he's destroying the Philly cheesesteak sandwich. Now, keep in mind, he's keeping the panel clean. There's no grease. There's no droplets of sauce or anything. Everything what? is neatly within, like, the wrapping. Like, there's no crumbs or anything. All of it is inside of the wrapper. And uh -huh. he's calmly eating. And then I notice his left hand, his right hand. And this guy's doing combos with one hand. What? And he's eating the Philly while, like, he would take bites when he was far away from the opponent. And then, like, he would move the stick with his thumb. And then he would do combos with his pinky and his index finger. And he was, like, dashing and moving around. And I was like, what the fuck? And then, like, the moment that the narrator starts talking, you start hearing chomping. He's, like, crushing the sandwich. Like, he's destroying the shit out of it. And then, like, when it says win, he would take a sip because he had, like, a cup on the side. And I was just like, my stupid ass. I'm like, I'm going to play this guy. Right, <laughs> so <laughs> he's so, only using one hand. He's distracted by the Philly cheesesteak. He, he right? clearly, he clearly has weaknesses, right? Like food is his weakness. I, you know, this is his own like doing. I'll beat him because of his own doing, right? And this guy proceeds to like aggressively beat the shit out of me more than the computer. <laughs> and 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 I remember it every time I got hit. I would see the peripheral out of the side, his mouth expand and like consume more of the sandwich. 
And then, like, he would just keep playing. And it was just like, I could tell. It was like, I remember the distinct smell of caramelized onions, bacon, and my defeats. And I was just like, if I'm going to play this game again, I need to learn this game. And I remember it coming out on Dreamcast, and I was like, man, I wonder if I'll run into that cheesesteak guy again. <laughs> <laughs> He's been training. <laughs> and, 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 and just like how it always happens, you never run into those people again. You never see uh, them again. Like, you level up, and it's just like, you leveled up because of the experience that you had with him, or her, or whoever. And it's like, you will never forget that person. I will never forget Cheesesteak Man. Like, ever. <laughs> never forget him. He played uh, Mitsurugi. And he was just he was just a beast, man. Like and he kept that panel clean. Like there was no grease, nothing. What a like gentleman. His, yeah, his gameplay was clean and he was clean. Like it was just like it was awesome. I'll, I'll never forget that. But that was like one of the catalysts why I wanted to play uh Soul Calibur, because cheese stick man. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I wonder I wonder if um I wonder if he bought the uh the fishing peripheral. Uh yeah, I'm sure. I know, because right? You could use it to play other games. <laughs> he was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> it was possible to play uh, Zul Calibur at home one-handed using the fishing, uh, the fishing controller. The fishing controller, so he wouldn't have to worry about using his thumb in such an awkward way. But it was, it was really cool to watch him like move around uh, just with his thumb. I think the only other time I saw someone do that was Justin. I saw Justin Wong doing that. He was playing CBS1. He was doing... Uh, my combos in CBS one, but uh, which is also a Dreamcast title, but not a launch title, so I'm not going to go into that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like Soul Calibur uh, was a very interesting experience for me, and uh, I remember every combo I learned, every ring out that I got, I was like, one day I will find you, cheesesteak man. You know, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a it's it's a very cool game. Uh, I, I felt like it, it was probably one of the most uh, beautiful. 3D weapon-based games that I had played. Uh, I was a big fan of Samurai Showdown, um, you know, also Toshinden. And uh, this game was, like, a fun experience to play around with and try to, like, uh, engage in, like, a different experience than what Samurai Showdown is because this game is very different from that in terms of, uh, you know. But it was a good launch title to uh, yeah. to experience, um, you know. And I, I I still have fond memories of it to this day outside of Cheese Stickman. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I uh, wanted to, to uh, talk to y'all nostalgically about uh, one of the now gone, uh, another unsung hero of the launch of the Dreamcast, Midway Games. So Ooh, wow. Midway Games uh, put out Ready to Rumble, NFL Blitz, Hydra Thunder, um, Mortal Kombat Gold, um, all like fantastic launch titles. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to kind of put it out there. Like, you were, we were talking about this. I don't know why uh, that story you just told reminded me of my arcade experiences with NFL Blitz, which is, like, not a game you play with a friendly tone because it's all – if you're it's – a, it's a football game, but it's a football game where the rules really don't matter, so you spend half of it just running into other people. And you, you only ever played it in an arcade – to James' point, with, like, food on the side, because you really weren't paying much attention. And I feel like that, to me, that really emblematically <laughs> talks about the moving the arcade experience to Dreamcast was this, like, yeah, it's just going to be dumb fun, and, like, yeah, whatever, there are rules, but just, like, 
eat your food and run into people and, you know. <laughs> and just have a good old time, man. Just have a good old yeah. time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, it's it's fine, man. Like, you know, your debauchery comes with uh, ribs and a shake. Like, why not? Like, <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's yeah, like... <sighs> This, this system just creates such such fond memories, man. And this is yeah. just with stuff that came out with the initial release, man. Like, yeah, not that even was yeah. nuts. Yeah, really, like so many good games. Like, Tons like just games. very well crafted. Uh, just I guess strategic uh, communication between like first party and third party. Like it just yeah. like like the phone calls and the meetings that had to be had about this. Like you know, like it, this was a culmination of just like one of the best payoffs you could possibly have for um, a console release. So you know, shout outs to how that was actually handled at a time where it wasn't something that happened in that way specifically. At least in my uh collective memory like this this was it was just like when you looked at releases for it when it came out it was just like they were the santa claus of like <laughs> you know like you look at it you're like man everybody's happy yeah you know like like everybody's happy about this there's nobody that would be uh dissatisfied with like what's yeah I- I think that was actually one of the best um, console launches ever. Uh, just, just how great the system was, and just the lineup of games. There must have been like twenty games at launch, but like most of them were really good. Yeah. Um, even oh, just real quick, like NFL Two K, like that was such a big deal. That was yeah. like oh, that beat the crap out of Madden. That was like for years and years, everyone was accustomed to Madden being like the only game in town, and then all of a sudden, Dreamcast. NFL 2K like was just so much better like in every way just the, the graphics the gameplay I, 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 uh, I, have to, good? I, I have to say NFL 2K NFL Blitz like uh, I'm gonna throw like even though this didn't come around but, like I, it, it makes really pine for the time when sports games were more like NBA Jam and NFL 2K where like they took the sport like just a little bit less seriously and treated it more like a, an arcade game. Like, I know it's obviously an arcade game, but you know what I mean? Like, there's just that extra... Like, now Madden is, like, super realistic and serious. Like, there isn't there isn't as much joy to it. I just... I don't know. I, I definitely agree with you. It just makes me pine well, for that time. I, I would say NFL Blitz was definitely, like, super arcade but actually NFL 2K took things in a more realistic direction than uh, was, was possible before. Like, that, that was another one of those games where you're like, oh, that's, like, next gen, like... There, there's, there's, you know, 20 people on the field, but like they, they all look good. They're not like, they're not eight know. polygons. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's right around this time. Madden was, Madden was still a 2D game, right? I um, think the I last think Madden so must before. have been a 2D game. Yeah, yeah. Every time, yeah. Dude, NFL 2K was so threatening that EA just simply bought the exclusive rights to the NFL rather than compete with NFL 2K directly. They were just yeah. like, hey, well, you, you just can't use the NFL license anymore. Oh, man, I just pulled it up. You're right. Oh, it still looks so good. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I think uh, around this time, like, uh, NFL Game Day on the PlayStation had come out to compete with it, which did not age well, by the way. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's but great. That 2K just... actually aged really well. Yeah. Everyone was like, oh, Game Day is the new threat. And then it's like, nope, 2K. Holy moly. Like, yeah. 
I, I, uh, side tangent about game day just i know it's, it's not about dreamcast but it's still funny to me is i remember the big deal when they added that was that you could stiff arm people and the the physics engines weren't very good at the time so when you stiff armed people in an nfl game day it was like you punched them like, yeah. <laughs> you them across the field <laughs> oh, shit. It was it was too effective. You could basically get a touchdown on any breakaway. Um, oh, but shit. then it that actually aged very well. <clears throat> it's like road rash football. Like, <laughs> well, well to, to to get deep into it, the reason it didn't age well is because PlayStation re- re- relied on the polygons and the lighting engine, and uh, Dreamcast relied much more on. Even in this case, the the 3D uh, still relies a lot more on the painterly portion of the texture and the field texture so like I, I think as playstation got older the boxy shapes just didn't look that good and there wasn't much artistry to them because they relied so much on the 3d engine to do it whereas like there's still a bit of artistry to the to the nfl 2k stuff on dreamcast yeah yeah, yeah. i just want to uh, give a shout out to one more game uh do you guys remember pen pen trisalon <laughs> Oh, shit. I haven't heard that in fucking forever, man. Yeah, the game where you control, like, the little uh, the penguin guys, but there's yes. also, like, walrus penguins and, like, just all animals, but with, like, the, the bottom half of a penguin and different heads. And um, <laughs> you competed in a triathlon where I think you start running and then you go, like, uh, and then there's, like, a swimming section. Yeah, there's something where you, like, like, hop sort of over like stuff in the obstacle water. course, like, a platforming. Yeah. And it was pretty much um, Fall Guys. Fall Guys is Pen Pen Trisalon, but with, like, 100 oh. people. And you know online. what? Yeah, you're right. Because it, it, it had similar obstacles and challenges. Yeah, I didn't even place that. What was it called, that in America? Because I remember... The, I remember the cover, but I don't remember it being called Pen Pen Trisol. Was it just Pen Pen in America? I think it was just Pen Pen in the States. Okay. Yeah, that was yeah. A, that was a, a like a really goofball looking game, but it's also really cool looking, really cohesive. Yeah, it was just it was just called Pen Pen in the in the in the States. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I like, do recall they did a marketing campaign. It was way ahead of its time where the Pen Pen characters, they partnered with a number of other Dreamcast launch titles, and they would appear as cameos on other posters. Huh. What? Yeah, yeah, when you were at, like, Toys R Us in the mall and stuff. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can find one online. But, yeah, uh, that was a, like, like I said, that was a, you know, kind of a really innovative way to market at the time. Yeah, I mean, again, this goes back to just... They were just doing some wild stuff to get people's uh, wallets to open back in the day, like, and it worked. Like it, like it just it, having a Dreamcast at that time was like, a, just man, it was it was such a a glorious time. Like even though that time has come and gone for you know obvious reasons, uh, it, it still has. I still have fond memories of that system. Um, and being able to go back and, and play those things and just hearing the boot up for Dreamcast is like already like a pleasurable thing just to kind of like get into the vibe of relaxing and remembering a lost time. So, yeah, uh, yeah man, cheers. Cheers to Dreamcast. I mean, Sony killed it, but like <laughs> well, that's, yeah. that's a good segue. <laughs> oh, man. I, so we're talking about how great 
the Dreamcast was, how much we love it. Uh, amazing system, best launch ever. But um, it actually didn't do that well. Uh, yeah. You know, like like we can look back on it very fondly, but um, it didn't sell nearly as well as uh, Sega was hoping. It ended up in their their swan song, and I think that was hugely because uh, uh, Sony like just absolutely like uh, torpedoed the Dreamcast launch because like right before the Dreamcast dropped in North America, uh, Sony decided to um, reveal the PlayStation 2. Uh, I think it must have been at what, like E3, maybe? Or, yep. or, or CES? I think it was E3 back then. Yeah, it was E3, actually. Yeah. So, so just get, getting back into the console wars now, right? You, you know, before it was like Sega does what Nintendo and stuff like that. Nineties marketing was like uh, very directly um, antagonistic, right? And yeah. then By the time you get to the late nineties, early two thousands, yeah, you're getting much more sophisticated. Like so, without even mentioning Sega directly, like they they just stole all the thunder because they, you know, right before the Dreamcast came out, they they showed off all these tech demos for the PlayStation 2, and dude, they did them dirty. They did Sega dirty because, like, they would, they were showing off, like, pre-rendered stuff. Yep. And then sort of implying that it was real-time, and then magazines, like, just ran away with it. They were like, oh, you know, what turned out to be the opening to Onimusha, they were like, this is the game. Like, games will look like movie scenes now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember they did that with, like, Gran Turismo as well. Um, yeah. 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 They did it dirty. Yeah. yeah. It was. Yeah, they, it, ugh, they showed off like a demo of Tekken with like you know, um, uh, like I, I think maybe Kazuya fighting like his son, and then there, there's like a hundred 3D modeled characters in the audience too, and people were like, "Oh my god!" Like, oh yeah. And then they also showed like Dynasty Warriors two and Dark Cloud. Um, yeah. Yeah. In yeah. that same one. Yeah. 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 And it was, I, I love the PlayStation 2. I, I think it's an amazing system, one of the best libraries, but my God, like, they, <laughs> oh, yeah. Poor Sega. Yeah, the, uh, it, the only thing that it, I, can, I can correlate it to is uh, a very, very famous scene in the end of Evangelion where Asuka's battery runs out. Like, that's that's really what it felt like. Like it was just like Sega did the thing. It was cool, but that that time limit, man, it was just like like it felt the same way. It was almost like a bunch of PS2s were circling around very slowly and gracefully, like Coward did, like and all the angels. It was just like you know, and it just fed on it, like because it killed it almost instantly. Um, that that was um that dude that's so close to reality because uh, oh, I forget the guy's name but it was the the former CEO of Sega and he had the the most shares in the company uh, he was retired at the time um, the Dreamcast was doing really poorly so he like liquidated all his shares and gave the money back to the company and he was like on his deathbed and like legend has it his dying words were like don't let the Dreamcast die. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? oh, that's so sad. Um, oh. Somebody, I, this is purely anecdotal on my part. I, 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 I don't, don't take this as fact. <laughs> okay, like I actually need to to look this up. But um, something along those lines happened. Like, like Sega was 
you know, they, they, this was back during the what, like the, the. It wasn't like today where like people skip around jobs. Like back then, like if if you joined Sega, like you were a, a Sega person for life, right? Uh, especially yeah. in Japan, like you were you were a lifer. So, um, yeah, yeah, just the 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 structure of uh, all these companies was like fundamentally different back then. Like it really meant something to like. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's it sounds insane, but like, yeah, like Sega really. It wasn't just. I know this sounds crazy, but they 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 weren't just like a megacorp. They weren't just some faceless corporation. Like this was a company that like the people there like really cared about. Like they, they, a lot of passion uh, went into these things. And it wasn't just business as usual yeah there's a lot of creators that walked in and out of uh sega that really poured their hearts and souls into things it's you know something as simple as uh you know the rolling start theme song for like daytona usa like you know if you know the story behind like you know who created that and how they got involved it's like you know their love for music and their love for singing was like you know, something that was genuine and sincere, and it was something that was able to be uh, harvested and put into this game. Um, and it's just like, this was not like a one-time thing. This this happened throughout like many of Sega's projects. There were a lot of people who just really poured themselves into these games that people play. So that company was a culmination of just like a lot of life. Um, a lot of beautiful life um, being shared across the world. So uh, it was a big deal to work for Sega. It was a big deal to uh, make decisions for that company. Um, so, you know, in that particular case where, you know, someone is, you know, got such a huge stake in the company and they're on their deathbed, it's like, you know, it makes sense for someone to have their final statements be so strong and, and passionate uh, because, you know, this wasn't just about making money and selling consoles. This was about people pouring their hearts and souls into, you know, their craft uh, within that company and creating memories again, or like across the world. So, oh, yeah. oh, I, I found it. Okay, so I have the actual uh, correct information in front of me. It was in um, 2001. The uh, Sega was, you know, in the red because the by, by two, Dream, Dreamcast launched in '98 in Japan, '99 in America, and by 2001 it was clear Sony was murdering them. <clears throat> the president of Sega, Asao Okawa, gave back all of his shares in Sega back to the company, um, <clears throat> you know, to save them from bankruptcy and mass layoffs. His donation was worth $695.7 million of his own private wealth in, in 2001 money. Today, that would be a little over a billion dollars. Yeah. Imagine, can you imagine any CEO anywhere doing that to save the company for the sake of all the employees still there? Because the... You know, the, for the most part, people today, like they go to a company, even a lot of startups, their dream is to cash out, right? To IPO, yeah. get those shares, mm -hmm. and yeah. like you live in a private island somewhere. This guy, like, 
gave up his actual like not just his but like god like ge- generations of his line <laughs> could have lived off of that um he gave it back to the company to save the company like that's that's remarkable like that's that's unheard of uh but that, that was sega you know yeah 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 like, man like it's just yeah i mean i guess it's like when you when you you think about things like that like it 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 just makes you look at the industry in terms of like where it is and it's not to say one is worse or better than the other or anything like that it just it just comes down to the fact that i guess as someone as a as a creative it's like you know for me it makes me want to cherish um the hard work that happens in any game whether it's new or old because you know in in a way it's like cementing like huge chunks of people's lives and uh work um to hone whatever talent it is whether it's voice acting whether it's sound design whether it's coding whether it's uh you know making 3d renders or models or sprites or whatever it is like uh, the representation of what we're seeing is like an outpour of uh, a talent that's been honed. And we don't know what the situations were at that time when they were creating. We don't know what that could have been like, but they still came in and they still uh, performed the job that is incredibly difficult to do. Um, you know, regardless if like a game is super successful or not, or if it tanks or like whatever, like, it still means that a lot of people put a lot of hard work into it, whether they were working directly on the game or the ones that signed the checks for it. Like it's, it's, it's something that it's, it's a heavy thing, man. People really pour themselves into these things, man. So the fact that we're looking back on this, it's like, you know, we're just remembering a time that people put in a lot of hard work to create wonderful memories that we're all kind of sharing right now. Oh man. Yeah. Like it's, oof. It's heavy, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that, um, I gotta, I gotta call it a night soon. It's getting super late out here. <laughs> We're yeah. one console down in one generation. <laughs> <laughs> and we tried, we tried so hard. We tried, to stay on. we tried our we best. Tried, we tried. So we even, we, we huddled up ahead of. Uh, this podcast and we're like okay we're gonna we're gonna stay on task <laughs> we're gonna um, try to stick with the main theme of console launches and you know, uh, you know I, I, I hope you'll forgive us for <laughs> this long it, in, our, in our defense yeah. in our defense we started with Dreamcast which isn't fair there's so much to say it's such a good console yeah. Yeah, and just like what we're what we're saying now is like it wasn't just a console; it was an event, it was a movement, it was it's a lot that comes with the Dreamcast, man. Like that system means so many different things to people. So you know, it's kind of hard to like you know microwave dinner that you can't you can't TV (laughs) dinner. It's hard to TV dinner a Dreamcast like the history, you know, or or even a launch. Not even a history, but just a launch. Like it's. It's pretty important, man. It's hard to. We tried, man. We tried. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you guys up for? Uh, yeah, just. We'll I always just have. Through I the always have extra quarters, Richmond. I always right. have extra quarters, Richmond. Always. <laughs> All right. Line them, line them up on the cabinet, then. Yeah, always have All them, right. man. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, all right, I guess I'll close things out. So I guess uh, if you're listening, um, 
Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for, for listening uh, to the Art Eater podcast. I'm, I'm your host, Richmond. I'm here with my co-host, Sean, and our uh, special guest, uh, James. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can you can follow the Art Eater podcast uh, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Um, if there's a platform that we missed, uh, you, let us know. Uh, so you can contact, contact us on Twitter at Art Eater Podcast. Um, on Twitter, that's where you can keep up with, uh, you know, whenever we release uh, news about upcoming podcasts, uh, you can check it out there. Um, if you want to catch up on the old ones, you can also go to www.art-eater.com, A-R-T-E-A-T-E-R.com, and uh, click on the podcast section, and you can catch up to uh, all the previous ones. Um, yeah, and... Uh, you, you can follow me um, uh, on Twitter at Richmond underscore Lee. Uh, that's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D underscore L-E-E. Um, and uh, see Sean, James, uh, can, can you guys uh, let people know how to, how to follow you uh, outside of the podcast? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm James Stanley. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Beefy underscore Kunoichi. Uh, you know, from time to time, I talk about old anime, new anime, food, food that I'm cooking and, uh, you know, projects that I'm working on, uh, part-time shuffle. You'll see a lot of progress storyboards, um, and random rants about Lovecraftian anime. So if you're into that, you know, you can follow me there. Yeah. And James is an excellent artist. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. But, uh, Sean, I'm always here. You can follow me at uh, Dvorsk, D-A-B-O-R-S-K. I mostly talk about UI, PC gaming. Uh, as I mentioned, my my uh, day job is I lead the design teams at uh, NZXT, or as the as our friends in Canada or the UK UK say, NZXT. Uh, so <laughs> they said Z. They say Z in Canada. Yeah, yeah, they say NZXT. Oh, wow. I, I actually I quite know it. So anyway, uh, and I also occasionally uh, write about UI and games and other such things of that nature. Uh, yeah. And and Sean is just what he's not saying is he's one of the best graphic designers and UI designers like in the world. <laughs> Can confidently say that he's amazing. Very nice of you. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Oh yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. Thanks everyone for listening and uh, tune in next time. And we'll 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 try to we'll keep making our way through the history of uh, console launches. So um, yeah. Thanks a lot. And uh, please look forward to the next one. Take care. Later. All right. Okay.